Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. I hope you are doing okay wherever you are. Today on the program, my guest is Antoine Wilson, author of the new novel, Mouth to Mouth. When people talk about fate, often they're basically just sort of repackaging serendipity, right? Uh, you can look back at, at a big fork in your life where you know, had it not gone that way, things would have turned out completely different. And it sort of sends a chill up your spine, or it can. That is Antoine Wilson, and his new novel again is called Mouth to Mouth. Antoine Wilson's other books include the novels The Interloper and Panorama City. His writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Quarterly West, and Best New American Voices, among other publications. He is a contributing editor at a public space and has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award, the Southern California Independent Booksellers Association Book of the Year Award, and the Forward Magazine Book of the Year Award. He has taught in a variety of settings, including the University of Iowa, the University of California, San Diego, and the Stanford Continuing Studies Program. A great talk with Antoine Wilson. Up ahead. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang. Brimming with heartbreak, comedy, and suspense, The Family Chow offers a kaleidoscopic, highly entertaining portrait of a Chinese-American family grappling with the dark undercurrents of a seemingly pleasant small town in Wisconsin. John Irving calls The Family Chow, quote, a Dickensian drama of family conflicts and intrigues an insightful comedy of the American immigrant experience, and of a small town's inner workings. That's The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang, available now from W.W. W. Norton and Company. So before we get going with Antoine Wilson, I do want to give another quick update on my book and on the publication process. 
For those of you who are new to the program, I have a novel of my own coming out in May. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is a work of autofiction. And on this show, in the monologue, in recent weeks, I have been talking about the publication process, kind of going through what it entails for me. And I will continue this diaristic, uh, episodic <laughs> interrogation as I approach the book's release. Uh, right now, I'm in limbo, and I imagine that the early trade reviews for the book are going to be coming out relatively soon, either later this month or in March. And that, I suppose, will begin the next phase of the process. So right now, I'm in this kind of gray zone. But once the reviews start to come in, it all starts to get a bit more real. So I've got to get ready for that. And, you know, the idea is to not pay attention to the reviews at all. I think that's the ideal. But it seems sort of futile when you think about it. I feel like one way or another I'm going to find out what they say about the book. At least the general tenor of what they say. And I think it'll probably be a mix of some kind, as it almost always is. Though I am hoping to avoid absolutely damning reviews, if at all possible. Because I think all writers would like to, <laughs> would like to avoid absolutely damning reviews if they can. But maybe especially so because my book is autofiction which is to say it's more or less about me. So logic would seem to indicate that if people hate the book, then they probably hate me. Or would, you know, have a hard time taking to me in person. So what gets weird is when you start to think about people who know me, because there are going to be people who know me and who think they like me, who hate my book, and who, therefore, I would posit, actually hate me, but they don't even know it. Until now. And can I say, too, once again, uh, how much I hate anonymous reviews? These reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. Put your name on the review. Why do they do that? I feel like that should be illegal. Nobody should be allowed to write a review of somebody else's art anonymously. That's bullshit. But what's funny is that when the reviews are good, you'll see the responses on uh, social media or whatever. And the author is always saying something like, like, thank you so much to whoever it was who gave my book such a deep and thoughtful read. And then if the reviews are bad, it's like, uh, please rot in hell, <laughs> you shameless coward. Come out of the shadows. Show me your face. But, I, you know, I know where I stand. I think you should put your name on a review. At least have the decency to do that. So if you would like to pre-order a copy of my novel, you can do that right now. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. It's all very easy. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a novel due out on May 10th. And pre-orders really help 
They help the cause. So if you can swing it, I would be grateful. And if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a handwritten note in the mail along with an other people sticker. And I'll give you a shout out right here on the program. What do you think about that? Speaking of which, I would like to offer my thanks today to the following people who are kind enough to pre-order my book. Thank you to Vaughn Johnson, Jennifer Patino, Sam Incandenza, Lisa Grimes, Michael Richmond, and Alex Baumgartner. I appreciate it, you guys. Thank you so much. And one more time to everybody at home, if you would like to pre-order the book, just go to bradlisty.com. Send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase to the show's email address, letters at otherppl.com, or you can DM the screenshot to the show's social media feeds on Twitter or Instagram. All right? All right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's guest is Antoine Wilson. His new novel, Mouth to Mouth, is available right now from Avid Reader Press. This book has been generating a lot of buzz. It has been getting well-deserved acclaim a lot of word of mouth about this book in keeping with its themes. It is a terrific, taut, suspenseful, precise Swiss watch of a novel. You can read it in a sitting or two. It flies by. It is a true page turner that is also deeply intelligent and finely crafted. It is a novel about identity and memory and ambition and about narrative itself and how human beings build themselves out of stories. I just loved it. And I keep recommending it to people because it's such a fun book that is satisfying on different levels. It satisfies the side of me that loves to be entertained. It satisfies the intellectual side of me, the literary side of me. It is not a trifle of a book. It's a entertaining book that packs a punch. 
and it features incredibly well-drawn and memorable characters. So I had a great time reading it and a great time catching up with Antoine. He and I go back a little bit. We know each other from Los Angeles. Both of us live here, and we are literary people here. So we have crossed paths a few times in the city, but it has been a minute since we caught up, and it was just a lot of fun talking with him, this conversation. So let's get to it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Antoine Wilson, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Mouth to Mouth. I was uh, visiting Seattle with uh, uh, two friends of mine. This was back in 97, so you know, post-college, we were just bumming around, and we're down by the waterfront, and it was that, you know, like where they, it's like a military weekend where you can go and go onto the, like the Navy ships and stuff like that. I forget what it's called. So we were down there by the waterfront and and I just noticed out of the corner of my eye, this guy walking along, just like air drumming, headphones on, kind of, you know, eyes closed, just walking along. And he, then I saw for some reason, a train track runs right through there and there's a freight train coming and and they're on a collision course, basically, like this guy is about to walk in front of this train. So I yelled and got his attention, which didn't stop him from walking. And then he finally stopped when I was like waving at him. And then the train went by. And so he was, you know, not far from having stepped in front of it. And he just put two and two together and just looked at me and said, oh, my God, you saved my life. And and. And then he said, I'm going to buy you a big steak dinner. And then the train kept going and, and then it was it had gone by completely. And he just kept walking and air drumming and I, I never saw him again. And so like my friends uh, pretty much just gave me shit for like, you know, for not getting my steak dinner. And um, it was some time later. I've always been sort of interested in this rescuer rescued relationship and wanting to write about it that kind of like, I guess both in terms of life-saving, but also like people who like white knight, you know, and how that can diminish the person who's rescued or how sometimes those intense moments also, you want to kind of hang on to them, even though they've just gone past you, which is what happened with my steak dinner. So I actually like 10 years ago, I started working on a version of what became mouth to mouth. And it was, I I changed it to a drowning because I'm, I'm a surfer. I'm in the ocean a lot. I have helped people. I've never helped saved anybody's life like that, but I've helped people who've been distressed in the water. And I don't know, I think about the water all the time. And so turn changed it into a drowning, but it, I did keep the steak dinner thing. So it was sort of like this, uh, you know, he bought the rescuer a steak dinner. And then the rescuer says at the end of the dinner, this was great. Let's do it again next week. Um, <laughs> right. How many, how many steak dinners, do you owe someone for saving your life? And that was a, uh, you know, it was a fun concept, but it didn't work as a story. So I want to interrupt because the, the, first of all, you say that you were, you have long been interested in the rescue, the rescuer rescued dynamic. Yeah. Uh, and then you said you use this term white knighting. I want you to go a little bit deeper on, on these two fronts. Like, why do you think you're interested in a rescuer rescued, uh, dynamic? That's a, Good question. I'm, I guess because my father was a surgeon. So he, he did some, you know, life saving in his work. He was an orthopedic surgeon, a trauma surgeon 
at times. And I was pre-med in college. So I, in, in a lot of, for a lot of the time in college, I, I did think about what it meant to sort of serve people in a, in a medical capacity. And I was also an EMT. I worked as an EMT at UCLA. So I don't know, just absorbing all of that. And it's a highly significant thing to save someone's life. But it, it also has a strange, it can have a strange power dynamic that comes out the other end. And, you know, professionals don't necessarily think about it that much. You know, over the years, people would offer my dad, you know, all kinds of gifts or they'd draw him special, you know, like drew a special cartoon for him. Or one guy offered him his firstborn son um, that was in uh, Saudi Arabia. And wait, 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 wait. He offered your dad like you can have my child. Yeah, yeah, you can take my, yeah, like, I guess, raise my child. I don't know. I think he was just really expressing great gratitude for having his life saved. Wow. I I know. It's a strange one. But when you're a professional, you just, you don't really think about it that much. You're sort of just doing your job. But when when it's um, civilians, I think people sometimes get thrown out of whack a little bit by by the power of the moment. Sure. And you you also, like I think in your early pre-med years or exploration of a career in medicine, you worked in a neonatal ICU and actually participated in like chest compressions and saving a life at least temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a pediatric ICU. We, We worked in both. And this was before I was on rescue ambulance. The, the sort of first tier of EMT work at UCLA at the time was transport. And so we would have to go transport patients and, and we had this like rolling ICU kind of ambulance, you know, you could drive it almost as far, sometimes as far as Bakersfield or whatever, and bring kids in who needed to be at UCLA. And then when we weren't doing transport, we just helped out around the hospital in the emergency room and in those ICUs if they needed a hand with anything. And so, yeah, I was there. A young girl was coding. She had had a transplant and was having some issues and and they and they just asked hey you know you want to take a turn with the chest compressions i think they you know it's a weird thing medicine because you really deal with people as bodies uh you know in that moment you're not really thinking about them as a person because you just need to keep the body working so i think the you know the doctors are just probably tired of doing compressions. So, Hey, take a, take a stab at it. So yeah, I did some compressions and they, I was there when they were able to, you know, get a pulse going again. And then, um, I think it was about a half hour later, I was with my partner and we'd gone down to the cafeteria and we heard that, uh, the patient had died. God. And so then the humanity of the patient, I mean, does it come to you later? I know that I can imagine how you have to sort of separate yourself in the moment. If you're too, invested in the person's humanity when you're trying to save their life it can get in the way you know you kind of have to of course. detach but then after the fact how does yeah, that 20 years you? later yeah you know yeah i mean well the other thing is i was you know in my early 20s so yeah just just in my early 20s so the, i i think it's hard to absorb some of those things especially when you don't have that much life experience now you know i have a daughter i have a son you know i i know what it means to love somebody that much and what it means to lose somebody. And so now it hits me harder to, to, to look back at that scene. 
at the time it was yeah it hit me but it was in it was just felt like this for sort of abstract emotional cloud and i wasn't quite sure how to process it i like the idea i like this uh part of the story with the one in seattle of not, yeah. not getting a thank you <laughs> It's yeah, like, uh, yeah, it's like Seinfeldian. You save somebody's life, and the guy just it's keeps. Super... And, and you saved an air drummer, which is like incredibly right. generous of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he did thank me, you know, and, but he just didn't give me the thing that he was. I, I think it was a genuinely um, sincere expression of thanks. It just did, you know, he didn't follow through. That's what I mean. You deserve that stake. <laughs> yeah. You really do. I mean, you save somebody's right. life. You get their, you get their information, and you. You send like a fruit basket or something. I mean, something. That's right. What if the steak had killed me, though? That's right. right. <laughs> that, there is a novel. E. coli. A short story, right? <laughs> or, or E. coli or just a, you know, cholesterol, the long, the long haul, or just choking on a piece of it would be ideal. Yeah, that would be. But uh... And then he would Heimlich me, and then we'd be even. <laughs> <laughs> so airportstory.txt. Yeah. Is like the, the I, like when you start to excavate in the age oh, of man. computers as a yeah. writer of books, fiction or none, like what I have found is that there are files on my computer where I'm like, I can't even remember doing this. Yes. Uh, but there are files of significance, like in retrospect, files that led me to like the eventual completed project or whatever. So can you just talk a little bit about that and yeah. about the origin story of this book and, and, uh, how it sure. began? Well, what I have to say, you know, on that topic, one thing that I've noticed with every everything I've written is, uh, oftentimes, when I'm in the middle of working on a book, I feel like I'm lost. You know, I'm like, is this even a thing? This is sort of not, you know, this is the middle of working on a first first draft. What is this thing? What's happening? And then I'll I'll finish the draft or finish even the book. And I go back and look at some notebooks where I was scribbling notes about trying to figure out what it was. And inevitably in those notes is like a two sentence presses or, you know, a, like a description of exact of the entire book. Right. You know, this is the whole arc of it. And this is, this is how it ends. And it's just sitting there in my notebooks, plain as day. And I think it's something that probably couldn't be that useful to me while I was working. But in the end, it sort of that's what it turned out to be. It was always with me. So the, the airport story thing is just a funny bit because I, this book was completely finished, and I was just I don't know what I was looking for on my computer, and I saw airportstory.txt, and it has the element of a name being called in the airport and the narrator wondering if it's this person he knew from you know decades before, and then sort of next to it is also the image of being in a plane and looking down and, and seeing fireworks from above. And these are two things that appear on the first page of mouth to mouth, but they're also in this document from 2001 that, you know, I hadn't looked at, but it, this is, I guess it's just sort of things keep circling in your, in your head or in your consciousness until you get them out. So, why don't you give listeners like a broad strokes overview of the story that you're telling? I could do it, but I always feel like the author is probably better qualified. Like, is there a a way to sum up just like the the basic narrative for people so that they can have some context? Yeah, let's start in the in the airport. So the narrator is a a, a 
a nameless narrator. He's a uh, sort of down on his luck author who's heading to Berlin to try to capitalize on a magazine there calling him a cult author. And he is uh, his flight is delayed and he hears a name and it's somebody he knew in college, uh, an acquaintance from almost two decades before. And this guy, Jeff Cook, is now a fancy art dealer and he invites our narrator up to the first class lounge for some drinks and then proceeds to unspool the story of his rise, how he became who he is today. Uh, And it's a story that begins with his saving someone's life on the beach in Santa Monica, which is an act that has sort of consequences that reverberate through the, through the rest of his life. He's never told anybody either, which is a curious thing. So the name Jeff Cook made me Mm. smile a little bit because this guy, you know, he, he saves this uh, man on the beach who turns out to be uh, a great character named Francis Arsenault, who is a very successful, very powerful art dealer in Beverly Hills. Yes. And uh, Jeff Cook then proceeds, and this is where the plot of your book gets really ingenious. He proceeds to insinuate himself into the life of Francis Arsenault, not revealing, if, if I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but he, yeah, gets, no, no, no. he gets involved in Francis Arsenault's life and business without revealing that he was the one who saved him on Santa Monica Beach. And so he's kind of cipher. And I think that word is even yeah. used in the text. And mm-hmm. I can't help but notice in contemporary fiction and perhaps literary fiction in particular, how characters often have cool names. And as a man named Brad, uh, I'm, particu- mm. I'm particularly <laughs> sensitive to this issue. But yeah. Jeff, Jeff Cook was just the perfect name for a cipher. It's such an unfancy, normal, every, everyday guy name. That had to have yeah. been part of your calculation, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, I'll tell you, since you're Brad... And I'll tell your listeners something that I haven't told anybody about the name Jeff Cook, which is that I have a a surf buddy up in Santa Barbara and he has uh, his own sort of like he's a financial advisor and he's got his own office kind of thing. And whenever I call his office, I always say that it's Jeff Cook calling. And then and then for the whoever had answered the phone, I always spell it. K O O K, right? <laughs> which is kook, you know, and it, kook is a, a surfing term for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing or they're, you know, they're kind of doing everything the wrong way. So it was just like this inside joke with my surf buddy. And then when it came time to name this character, indeed, I was looking for that super plain, almost anonymous kind of name. And, and I thought, well, my buddy will get a kick out of this, but I think it's also a really good name. Okay, that's okay. So I'm I'm glad to know that I'm on the right track. And I felt like yeah. it was a great choice for him and for the story that you're telling, which, you know, is has been characterized as a psychological thriller. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I if I, if I came to this book cold. I guess I might characterize it that way. Is that how you intended it? Psychological thriller? Were you thinking I'm going to write no. a psychological thriller, or are you now? receiving the news that your book is a psychological thriller upon its publication. The latter, 100%. Like, it got included in a roundup in the New York Times in December of, you know, holiday book, gift books, you know, and it was in the mysteries and thrillers, and my first response was, what? I wrote a thriller? 
and I, I, you know, I, I guess it, it comes down to the reading experience that people have and that make them put it in that category. It doesn't sort of, you know, wear those genre hallmarks on its sleeve, but I think people, some, some people come, come out of it feeling that they've had a sort of, uh, thriller-esque experience or, or people often invoke Ripley, Patricia Highsmith's talented Mr. Ripley because of the way Jeff tells his story. And we're never quite certain whether to the narrator is not quite certain whether to believe him or whether Jeff believes his own story, you know, that kind of stuff. There's, there's a lot of wiggle room there. So I think, you know, I think you can read this book and, and say at the end, ah, Jeff is a sociopath. That's not how I read it, but I think that's how some people can read it. And maybe in that zone, people feel it gets connected to thrillerdom or mystery. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that it's open for interpretation. I mean, this is definitely a book that invites readers to sort of formulate their own theory about it. And I, I think that what I was what I was contemplating as I read or what I was comparing it to in my head as I read is for some reason I was thinking of Roman Polanski. I was like, this feels like a Roman Polanski mm. film or something like that. And then it also to me had a kind of European feel. And I use that adjective mm -hmm. sort of loosely, but that's just what I was saying to myself. Like there's just something sort of, I don't know. I couldn't draw the exact comparison. Maybe there was a Roberto Bolaño novel that I wrote, one of his like shorter books or that I read, uh, that was, uh, that it was reminiscent of or had the same kind of vibe. Oh you know? yeah. There's a by night in Chile, right? It's kind of a, it's a confession novel. Maybe that was, so it. maybe it's that I, I think I, I don't, that's interesting. The European thing is, is a, 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 a curious tag because I sort of recognize it too, but I don't exactly know what it means other than it, it just, it's a different vibe. It's not necessarily a contemporary American vibe, but I also read a lot of, uh, while writing this, I, I was on a Patrick Modiano binge, which this isn't super Patrick Modiano-ish, but I was also on a Javier Marias binge after that. And I would say, you know, there were early drafts of this that positively stank of Javier Marias, you know, in terms of certain maybe prose ticks of his and stuff that I had to get past, but I was, I was under the influence to some degree and, and re reading, uh, what was the book? Thus bad begins. I think there's a similar sort of young person, older mentor of questionable morals situation. If I, if I remember that correctly, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. I yeah. mean, that's a confirmation. That's a second confirmation, like the Jeff Cook thing and yeah. now this, like that the DNA of the book does have some some uh, work from overseas because it had that sort of feel to me. And I mean that as a compliment. Like it just, yeah. I don't know, it felt sort of exotic or something. And I share with you a fascination with a couple of things that this book is centrally concerned with. Number one is the way in which we tell ourselves stories and we tell others stories and we create our own mm -hmm. identities with these stories and once you start to realize how flimsy they are, it starts to, at least it starts to cause me to question the materiality of anyone's identity, myself included. Yeah. I mean, I think the only mistake is to, to consider it 
you know, as anything but that, right? You, it, it's a, it's a solid sense of identity if it's fairly consistent to you and fairly consistent to those around you. But it is made of memory and experiences that have been filtered through memory and a sort of almost automated narrative making machine in our heads that we are not necessarily, you know, sitting there consciously molding. So, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing. I, I also, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the left brain interpreter, which is a, a concept that came up from the work of uh, Michael Gazaniga and some others in neuroscience where they, they were doing uh, experiments with split brain patients who um, had had their corpus callosum severed for, uh, to prevent epileptic seizures. And then they, but the, the, with these patients, they would experiment by showing them, you know, something to only one side of their field of vision. So you're only showing, you know, one eye and therefore only informing ha half the brain, one hemisphere, and the hemispheres can't communicate with each other. Well, they showed the right brain the word walk and the right brain is not great at generating language but it can recognize language and um and then the person would get up and walk and then they would say to the person hey why did you get up and walk and the person said oh i was going to get a coke and this is where they sort of discovered that in the left brain there's this little thing the left brain interpreter that comes up with reasons for why we do the things we do and it's doesn't really care if it, if they're if they're correct it only cares that they're plausible so to me that is like the, the sort of biological foundation for the unreliable narrator or for the fact that we're all un, unreliable narrators and i don't necessarily feel like it pulls the rug out from under us and our identities or anything it's just uh i mean we're always kind of acting in some way which doesn't mean we're not sincere it just is sort of built into the mechanism of who we are yeah well and yeah and i think about free will mm -hmm. which there's some debate over you know about whether or not we even have it or if the decisions that we make are even ours like if, right. if you get down into the weeds on free will it can get very muddled and confusing and almost terrifying because <laughs> yes. you, you know no, i you can become yeah, a nihilist right. almost like nothing matters. Like I'm not even, I feel like I'm making these decisions and, you know, I'm guiding right. my own life. But the truth is that I'm not at all, you know? Well, I, yeah, that's, that's one of those things. I've gone down that to a point and then I just decide, you know what? I, I don't really, I don't care about it that much. I, I'm going to go ahead and feel like I'm making my own decisions. And that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't need to, to like worry about a deterministic universe, but maybe that's been determined for me that I am not worried about it. The, the, there is, there are some weird neuroscience things about the decisions we make and, and how we behave. If you raise your, let's just take a random action. Like you raise your index finger you decide to raise your index finger and you raise your index finger. The sort of preloading in your body, in the nerves that will raise that finger, starts happening before you consciously decide to, to raise it. Uh, yeah, I've read about this. Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's this thing where we're actually consciousness-wise, because we gotta, we got to take a whole picture of the world and then it, it gets presented to us, right, in, in consciousness. And it takes a preposterously long amount of time, a half second. So we're living a half second behind real time as, you know, 
everything gets processed and we've got this picture of the world. You know, if you throw something at me, I can get my arm up quickly because that's like reflexes. You know, I, I think supposedly you can cancel an, an event that's about to happen. You can cancel raising your finger in real time. But all the other stuff, it's sort of almost like the, the sort of subconscious or you know something other than this little picture of the world that we're operating under is is deciding to do these things. And it's it is us. But it's it's weird to think that it isn't the sort of consciousness part of us. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think this brings me to like the second big theme of the book that I wanted to talk with you about, which has to do with fate, which is a great fascination, mm -hmm. I think, for both of us. I think it's a fascination for most people. Like, why do certain why do our lives turn out the way that they do and how much control do yeah. we have over it? And sometimes it can be easy to see these things in retrospect. You know, you can see clearly where big like forks in the road were and pivot points that yeah. changed the course of your existence. But, you know, I, I can be persuaded that we don't really have all that much control. Like a lot of life comes down to chance and yeah, we're not in control. Like with the things we do, sometimes they affect things, but a lot of, a lot of it's just luck. Uh, right. Like where do you yeah, fall I mean, on all that? Well, I think fate is an illusion, uh, you know, that, that does come from looking back and that it's sort of, uh, when people talk about fate, often they're basically just sort of repackaging serendipity, right? You can look back at, at a big fork in your life where, you know, had it not gone that way, things would have turned out completely different and it sort of sends a chill up your spine or it can, but, it, but essentially that's, it's not necessarily fate. It's just the direction that you happen to take. And in this book, you have this real uh, for you know, there, there's a clear fork in the road for Jeff Cook when he's standing on that beach yeah. and he looks out into the water and sees a man in distress. Yeah. And the way that you describe his psychology as he evaluates in, you know, rapid fire moments what to do fascinated me uh, because it's not something I'd spent much time thinking about. I think maybe in a passing way I've mm -hmm. thought about saving a life i think i i tend to think of myself heroically in those like psychological mm -hmm. moments you know it's like it's easy to just imagine yourself like rushing out and being the hero and pulling someone out of the water but if it, you're, you're actually in that moment the lived experience of it when you stop and think about it would likely be much different and you do a good job of making that plain so can you just talk yeah. a bit about that and those creative decisions yeah well i mean jeff's alone and he's telling the story in retrospect, right? So part of what he's looking at is, what if I hadn't saved his life? What if I had instead run to the payphone? Because there are no lifeguards on the beach yet. It's too early in the morning. And dialed 911. Nobody could have blamed me if I had done that. And I think to a certain extent, you know, that there is some, some of his thinking is in the moment. And some of his thinking is, you know, decades almost decades later, uh, almost two decades later, thinking about what if I hadn't gone down that one fork and what would that have meant in real life? You know, sometimes we'll see somebody in distress or we'll see a situation where potentially we could intercede and help somebody. We take a moment to be like, well, maybe they're okay, right? Because there's like a little hump you have to get over to sort of break the social fabric if there are other people around and stuff to like actually stop and intervene. 
And so I think there's a moment where you look and you say, do I do I need to 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 change my sort of inertia to go and and help this person out? And yeah, I think for for Jeff, there is a bit of that moment, too. And it also the book also brings up this interesting question of like you save a life and then and then once that's done, it becomes, well, what kind of life did I save? <laughs> and, right. you know, so there's a, a, like, there's the question of like, is this a good person? Did I just like, yeah, save the life of, a, of an asshole, essentially? He does wonder who he saved. And then as soon as he sees them in the flesh, you know, then it's sort of like, well, wow. All, I mean, you know, Jeff doesn't have a lot going on. He's been broken up with by his girlfriend and he's just out of college and a little bit maybe in need of, of direction. And so, yeah, he looks at this guy and he has this thought, well, all of this is happening because of me, right? I mean, if if I hadn't saved this guy's life, not, none of this would be happening. It would be a whole different world. Yeah, that's what, that was going to be my next line of questioning is because you do a nice job, I think, of painting that psychology, uh, you know, in the narrator or in Jeff, which is, you know, this feeling of responsibility, a kind mm-hmm. of almost godlike feeling, you know, that everything, mm-hmm. like everything that's happening for this person from the point on the beach forward is my doing. I, right. I created this for, for good or for ill, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so that's part of the fun of the book is getting to kind of follow him down that rabbit hole to see what he has wrought. And in Francis Arsenault, I feel like you've drawn like a really memorable fun, villainous, interesting, psychologically complex character. Like I love, I think mm-hmm. he gets a big response, I'm sure from readers in the conversations mm-hmm. you've had. And what I found uh, as a Los Angelino is that, and, and knowing you a little bit, I feel like Francis Arsenault is you delving into and painting a portrait of a certain kind of power broker in the arts the kind of guy that's common in this like maybe all too common in this town and uh you grew up at least partially in santa monica on the west side and have lived among and still live on the west side and you know you've lived among these people and have probably known a few of them or have crossed paths and so yeah i'm wondering if like adventures in childhood or adventures in i don't know social life or the carpool, the carpool lane or whatever it is have helped to inform yeah. your building of the Francis Arsenault character. You know, one of the interesting things about Francis Arsenault is he doesn't, you know, the sort of outline of him comes from the, the art world and other characters in the, in the art world. I used to work for a fine art appraiser in Beverly Hills post-college and then post-grad school. So, you know, that's where a lot of that experience comes from. I don't love doing research, so I'll just go back to the memory banks. But the the uh, the actual sort of yeah, the internal character of him uh, comes from a lot of yeah, a lot of different bits and pieces sort of cobbled together. But in terms of a person at the head of a business in the creative world who who just gets to be a sort of unbridled narcissist. And it works, right? This is an unbridled narcissist who's not getting penalized in any way for it. He's that that those characters I've met uh, tangentially in Hollywood more than 
in other any other business i mean by which i mean the film business yeah yeah um i mean it's like i think for me reading him chilled me in the sense that i was reading this book while here in los angeles and was kind of thinking like he's out there <laughs> you know like this mm-hmm. dude i've crossed mm-hmm. paths with guys like this before and they are out there and, and there's a passage in the book that i think was maybe the most chilling for me where Francis is reflecting on his near-death experience when he's talking to Jeff. And yeah. he's like, nothing matters. Nothing you do matters. You know, it's, right. it's kind of like nihilistic. Yeah, uh, there's nothing after. I mean, because one of the questions that's not really central to the book, but was central to earlier versions of, you know, exploring the, the characters and the themes was, how did, how is Francis affected by having, you know, he he knows he basically died or nearly died out there in the ocean and was rescued. He doesn't know that Jeff was involved. He thinks it was the lifeguards and the EMTs. And, but how does that affect you? You know, and the, how are you going to live your life? And there are a lot of people who have those experiences and they say like, suddenly life is much more valuable or I recognize, you know, I don't waste any time or, you know, I have, I'm, I, I'm, I've got more joy because I know that I, that this is all bonus, you know, that, that kind of thing. Or I, I mean, I had a friend, one of my dad's friends was a surgeon, crashed his motorcycle and had to have surgery and stuff in Mexico. He had to have surgery back here. And he, he reflecting on that experience became much more sympathetic and empathetic with his patients. You know, these things change people, but Francis Arsenault is kind of a, a hard ass. And, and, in, and to a certain extent, what he gets from it is, yeah, no, there's not, this is it. And I'm going to take as big a bite of the apple as I can while I'm still here. Yeah. So it's a very specific kind of character and a very specific response to nearly dying. Well, yeah, and it's funny because like, I think I've heard both stories told. You know, you have the people who see the white light and might like float above a field or yeah. have an out of body and like be in the room watching the doctors try to resuscitate them or, you know, all these right, different right. ways. And then, I've also read accounts where it's like, nope, nothing. Just a <laughs> nothing. great big nothing, you know? And yep. which one do you believe? <laughs> like, where do you fall? What are you hoping for? Yeah, uh, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I guess we'll all find out. But... <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I I find that like when you're dealing with a character who's a cipher, and this kind of story, like a kind of Ripley-esque story, and you're playing with these themes of identity, and then you're also kind of indicting Los Angeles and big money, the big money, like aristocratic mm-hmm. art world kind of scene. What a perfect place, maybe even to the, a greater extent than I could imagine with, say, the film business or other art forms, like the, the fine art world, Mm-hmm. this land where paintings are traded for tens of millions of dollars between really rich people. Uh, yeah. Nothing could be more nebulous to me. And these valuations are based on what? Like what are they, yeah. like these kind of silent agreements between rich people. Yes. And also I think 
the like, like the ultimately fictional opinions of important power brokers like Francis Arsenal, <laughs> you know, like, right. like I want yes. to talk about that. And I didn't, I didn't pick up that you had worked, I guess I, sh I should have, but I didn't realize you had worked a little bit in this world out of college, but so you might have a window into it and maybe you did a little bit of reading about it non-fictionally as you were writing. But like, I always wonder like, how does that work? Well, I mean, if we go back, one of my fates forks was, uh, I, I finished UCLA wanting to be a novelist. I figured out I didn't want to go to medical school. And so I, I looked for a job that would be related to writing. And I just saw this uh, job posting for working for a fine art and rare book appraiser. And there's the word book. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, I, I was Jeff level doofus. And then that, that's how I got the job. And, it, you know, 95% of it was art and 5% books. But I learned, I didn't know much about contemporary post-war art, no more than, you know, anybody who goes to, you know, uh, some European capital and goes to the big museum and, you know, nods at the Monet's. And I learned a tremendous amount about contemporary art from auction catalogs, you know, and it was just crass, right? Like everything had a price tag on it. And yet while I was also learning what these things were worth, what the fair market value was of these works because of, as you call them, nebulous agreements between people, I was also really gaining a, a, a deep appreciation for contemporary fine art. So it, it's a sort of dual track thing that happened. And I think it actually happens to Jeff as well. I, I'm always interested in, in questions of value. Uh, not just financial value, but like worth, like what is, I mean, the sort of main central question anytime I'm writing or thinking about writing is what is worth paying attention to, right? And that's to me the core, core central thing. And so that, you know, expands into other questions of value and worth. And um, that that fine art market does seem super detached from the financial realities of just about everybody. And yet it has its own internal logic. Right. And yeah, it just hovers there. I, I was, I had a little nice little collision of the two. I was at the freeze art fair pre pandemic walking around and I saw, um, some work by a Japanese artist named Tatsuo Miyajima. And I had seen one installation of his at the Met Breuer on a trip to New York. And I had the room to myself. It was this dark room with these like, uh, LED numbers on the ceiling that were counting like zero to nine, I think. I can't remember the exact, but they're just cycling in this weird time cycle. And I just lay down on the floor and I had this amazing experience of, I was like, this is, this is more than any other artwork I had experienced. This is time. This guy is really dealing with time in a beautiful way. So I was at the freeze and I saw, oh my gosh, the, he makes little ones. You can actually buy this guy's artwork. And so I asked about one and it was uh, $55,000, right? And my first thought was, wow, what a deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> I can actually own a piece of this wonderful, profound, interesting artist's artwork for only $55,000. And then obviously following right on the heels of that is like, I don't have $55,000 and $55,000 is a very nice car. You know, it's a lot of other things. But within the context of art brain, 
yeah, I mean that makes total sense if you're a collector. Well, I I'll was just... going to say I was going to say if if you look at it through the lens of investment, you know, I, I think some of this is where you have to have some real good advice and know how, or just mm -hmm. like good instincts and a, a bit of luck. But one of my fantasies is to be the guy who buys a painting or who has a neighbor who like goes on to be Basquiat and like early on, like yeah. give, gives him yeah. like a bag of weed for like a painting or right. something. And it winds up being worth like $70 million, you know, like, <laughs> like those poor people who had Bitcoin right at the beginning. And they were just like, well, this isn't going anywhere. I'll buy a bag of weed, you know, and <laughs> right. then, or like, I'll use it to pay for pizza, pay my friend back. And it's like, would have been, you know, yeah. $75,000 or something. At least. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I kind of bristle at when it comes to thinking about this high end art world, like re especially really high end, we're talking like paintings yeah. that are going for tens of millions of dollars yeah. is that you almost can't lose. It's like, it, it's yeah. like real estate bets. Like if you're getting a house for $15 million, like if you're in that market, yeah. it almost feels like you're going to sell it for more because the only people who can afford that house can afford more. I don't know. It just seems like these people are just trading and making it's blue chip. Yeah. I mean, in the art world, they call it blue chip and they're, it, it mimics the sort of blue chip stocks, right? They're the most stable and they're the most, you know, they're the biggest companies and it's the same for that kind of art. And I, you know, things go in and out of fashion and people think, consider certain artists more or less significant over the years. And then the, the entire market can have a correction. Um, you know, when, when people move their assets into, other asset classes for whatever reason people do these things you know it can it can dampen the whole the market as a whole but yeah at that super high level it's it's all about i think parking money um you know and something like this miyajima piece it would be fifty five thousand dollars is not it, 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 I, I i don't think that would be a bet you know that he's going to become more significant and that this thing is going to be worth a uh, uh, hundred thousand dollars i think this is something that a collector with means or somebody who's putting together a museum would, would buy it because it's, they, they consider it to be a, an actually a, a profound work of art by a, a very interesting artist. I wonder what it's worth today. I wonder if you I think find... it's worth the same. I mean, it was just pre COVID. Oh, it was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You never yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You never know, but yeah, I'm always curious too about how art stars are made because you know, yes. what we're talking about are two different things, really, is like there's the art and then there's the commerce. And I think when we talk about Francis Arsenault and we talk about the mechanics of that gallery world and how all that works, that's the commerce part of it. The art part, I'm a lot less cynical about, except when it comes to like thinking about how the art star happens. Because my theory of the case, and maybe I'm wrong, is that there are like talent is actually in great supply. I feel this yes. as the host of this show. Like there are nothing but great writers coming down the pike. Like we're doing brilliant yeah. work, but some break out. Likewise mm -hmm. in Hollywood, you know, my limited experience there, like my theory of the case is that like a lot of people can do this, but only some yeah. people get the ride, you know, they get to go work on whatever show or whatever it is. And similarly, um, you know, comes to paintings, like there's only... Yeah. There's only one Cindy Sherman or well, there's only one, you know, whoever. And uh, right. I start to wonder, and this is where the cynicism creeps back in, if the, like, first of all, how it happens. Sometimes it's dumb luck and there are rich people of influence who just notice somebody's work and say, we're going to 
we're going to make you um, yeah. because we believe in you. That often happens, actually. There's like a patron. Yeah. But right. I also, and this is, I guess, a question I would pose to you uh, that you can sort of, uh, you know, agree with or not. I think about like the social nature of achievement in the arts, like this mm. making connections, this being able to ingratiate yourself to the right people at the right time, to be quick on mm -hmm. your feet, to be able to perform when the pressure's on and you have to make a good impression, to yeah. make the sale. And sometimes yeah. you do that overtly by trying to make the sale. And sometimes you do it by like playing possum and sort of like acting like you don't give right, a shit. Right, like Lee Bontecou or, or uh, Louise Bourgeois at times, right? But then for every one of those artists who sort of does the playing possum, I think there are, yeah, there are others who are making incredible bodies of work that will never sort of pop back out. Right. Um, yeah, and, and it does have, it has a lot to do with the, the the gallery owners for sure you know they can they can make stars out of artists it sometimes you see them try to pump somebody up and it doesn't happen you know but other times you know there you can take any number of sort of mid-tier artists who have been working by mid-tier i mean financially been working their whole lives and making these really really interesting works and you know they have buddies who are also who've come up with them and these people are selling work in the tens and twenties and thirties thousand and their buddies dropping, you know, it's up on the wall at, uh, you know, I don't know, Gagosian or something for half a million a painting. And what's the, what's the difference between the work? It is very subjective. You know, someone decided that one was more significant than the other financially, at least if not art historically. And and that someone is like a Francis Arsenault. Yeah. Yeah. France, probably Francis Arsenault. And then, you know, a couple of cronies. Right. With deep pockets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cronies I, with the deep pockets and then maybe an art historian or two to, to write, to write it up. Yeah. Okay. Cause that's the thing yeah. is that like, I'm thinking of this as a, like from the perspective of a deep pockets person who's like a collector and who might look at yeah. like fine art as a financial vehicle, like a way to get richer. Like if yeah. you knew, if you had a good close relationship with a gallerist and say an art historian, and you sort of had like a little like pipeline built of, uh, to, yeah. to, to launch something, you could theoretically locate a young talented artist or whatever age, you know, just a talented artist and say like, yeah. let's do this. I'm going to buy 15 paintings, right. you know, and like, right. I'm going right, to get right. them I'm cheap. Build you up. We're going to build yeah. it up and then I'll be able to cash in once the, you know, once the excitement is there. Yeah. I, I don't know how many people try to, I mean, I, I have, I actually don't know. I have no idea. People presumably do that, but I, I think a lot of people approach, a lot of people with deep pockets approach the art world as a, as a place to, uh, you know, park the money also, you know, sort of crow about what they have and seem cultural and, you know, <laughs> uh, write off taxes, who knows, but, but not necessarily to sort of like, let's go place bets on these long shots and, you know, try to manipulate the market to, to quadruple our money or something like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, that kind of speculation does exist, but I, you know, I don't know that much about it. Yeah. It's probably a great way to lose your shirt too. I mean, you'd have to really know, oh, big what time. know what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, well, right, because you can't judge it just from the work, right? You can't judge it just from the experience you've had of the work. You can have an eye and you can have a sense if somebody, you know, is is a, an interesting artist, but um, they're just solely based on the work. Sometimes there's no no real way to tell how it will do in the marketplace. Yeah, that brings me to my next question. You said the word I, and this factors into your book as well, you know, because mm. in these, you know, in these uh, imagined like um, media profiles of Francis Arsenault in art magazines through the, you know, through the years, his yeah. eye is often um, brought up. You know, he's a guy who's got an eye. And right, right. There's some, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but uh, I wonder at this too. Like, who are these tastemakers? Maybe they have great yeah. taste, or maybe they just have the courage of their convictions, and they can like put on the performance of conviction in the presence of certain people. And when yeah. someone's got enough confidence in their own views, you start to maybe follow and go, okay, well, I guess right. he knows. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. Or, well, hopefully it's both, right? Like they they actually have an eye and the courage of their own convictions because then they're interesting people uh making interesting claims well uh, and i think artwork but francis is such that he he pretty much believes that he could you know um take just about anybody and and thanks to his reputation and his power in the art world he could take anybody and and shove it right down their throats right and yeah. i think too like you know with people who are in sales like good salesmen or good saleswomen, you have to have a certain capacity to suppress doubt. You have no doubt. Mm -hmm. If you have any mm -hmm. doubt, and of course, like, I feel very yeah. much the opposite about myself, you know, like, I'm nothing but doubt. <laughs> so these right, kinds of right. characters kind of terrify me. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, how do you have such, just kind of like, just this airless, doubtless sense of your own views <laughs> i think yeah i think the key is you be a narcissist right <laughs> like a malignant narcissist is how you do it do you ever wonder if like maybe not like the extreme version of that kind of character maybe just elements of it are necessary to succeed in the system that we're in i can wonder about that sometimes like maybe yeah you have to yeah be i mean a it, and bit. that's there's a little subtext there in terms of the, who these two guys are who are meeting in the, in the lounge, right? The struggling novelist who's trying to capitalize, he's taken a red eye, he's going to have to take a train in Europe, and he's just trying to capitalize on this little bit of media that happened for his German edition. You know, maybe that's where he's going to, you know, encounter uh, an upward blip in the world of commerce. And then, you know, and then you've got Jeff Cook, who's this incredibly successful individual who who has the first class lounge access and who treats the narrator uh, like a guest almost like he's the host of the first class lounge so to to a certain extent that does imply that yeah it helps to be i mean jeff is not francis by any means but he's learned from francis it helps to be that kind of person if you want to sit atop a big pile of money yeah 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 <laughs> It's like a little, uh, I can feel alienated, you know, I feel alienated and I can feel that way. Like just reading about, <laughs> reading about it. Cause I start to investigate yeah. my own character and I'm just, I don't think I can do, I know I can't do that. And then 
obviously when you live near Hollywood. But they, but but Brad, they can't do this. That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I mean, the Francis Arsenos of the world sit at home pining for the ability to uh, sit well, in their garage. Who cares what they think? We get to do this. <laughs> who cares what they think? They don't know what they're missing. That's right. Yeah, they're living in poverty. They have no idea. Yes, right, right. So this is a very like another way that I've characterized this book in my mind, and maybe even in conversation to a couple of people, is that like it's like a Swiss watch, like it's very mm. artfully structured to a degree mm-hmm. that most books I read are not, especially in the literary fiction category. And that's not mm-hmm. to denigrate the other books; like there's different ways to skin the cat, but like this is definitely a book that has great structure, that has like a cinematic quality to its story structure. I'm wondering how much of that was intentional. I'm wondering if you drew an outline. Uh, No outline for this one. Uh, In fact, the sort of question of when to cut away from the lounge into what, what the uh, much of Jeff's story is in a close third person. um, I just sort of try to feel my way there and just get the rhythm of the storytelling and what, what I felt would work. Uh, and that, that cinematic thing may come from that sort of cutting away into a third person, uh, close third person depiction of Jeff's story. Cause it's, it's something we see in the movies all the time, you know, like a princess bride type narration, you know, and then you cut, cut to the footage. Um, but no, there was no outline on this one. Um, ironically, you know, the, my previous novel, which is much more of a picaresque in a lot of ways, that one I had to do quite a bit more outlining, uh, kind of after the fact, but in terms of organizing this, the structure of it, because the structure wasn't necessarily self-evident um, in the way it is for this book, where one thing really follows another. I feel like this should be adapted. I had that thought, too. Is there interest in adaptation yeah. from anyone? Yeah, yeah. I'm working with a, a producer and a director. Uh, I, I got to have a couple of, uh, you know, Zoom Zoom meetings with different producers who had their sort of take on things, uh, which is entertaining and strange. And um, yeah, it's not the business that I necessarily want to be in, but I'm very happy with the people I'm talking to about it right now. Cool. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, it could be really fun. I think so too. I think uh, as a feature yeah. film, you think that that would be an adaptation for a feature film, or are you thinking something like where they break it out into like a series or, or a limited series? Or yeah, yeah, the original. I mean, it's obviously a feature film uh, on its surface, and yet we've been drifting toward the idea of a series, limited series, because there's a lot more to explore in this world. Um, and if you do a feature, you know it. It's lean and mean, but it's it's sort of. It leaves a lot on the table, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the yeah. way that people or the way that streamers have allowed for these longer tellings mm-hmm. uh, lends itself well to adaptation. Like that's one of the upsides of, of limited, like the, the sort of golden age of limited series or whatever you want to call yes. it that we're in is that, you know, if you want to do a novelistic telling on the screen, I think that's the form for it. Right. You can get eight hours. Right. An eight, it's an eight hour movie. Right. And, uh, but with, you know punchy one hour long sections and it sounds to me i'm just like i could be wrong but it sounds to me like it's still kind of preliminary like uh, just for people listening like you think it's going to happen or is it kind of like in talks kind of thing it of course it's not going to happen brad these (laughs) things never happen 
<laughs> I know, but sometimes that, I proceed and I proceed under the assumption that ne- never it's never going to happen. However, these folks that I'm working with are really great and, uh, you know, seem to have their acts together and we'll st- it, it'll come down at a certain point to the to that marketplace. Right. They'll take it out to try to find an uh, outlet venue for it. And it all depends whether those places want to have it, make it. Sure. So yeah. this is also a short novel uh, or shorter mm-hmm. And it's got short chapters. It moves at a very brisk pace, which is part of the delight uh, in reading it for me. I'm wondering, like, what it took to get you there. Like, were you working from uh, like early drafts that were significantly longer? Did you pare it down, or was it more like a slow plotting compositional process where most of what ended up in the book was there, but it just took you a while to render it yeah closer to the slow well i don't know i was actually thinking about this uh earlier today thinking about the word compression because we use that metaphor a lot in in writing talking about short stories and talking about this book it's very compressed and i was thinking about how what a terrible metaphor it is because it implies somehow that the mechanism of making something like this you know, you're squeezing it somehow or you're, you know, getting in there and, and, uh, like, it's almost like you have a draft and you, you're pulling things out until it's all squished together. Uh, this, you know, if I have like one strength as a writer, it's, um, cleaning up after myself. And so I tend to, you know, uh, the metaphor I've used before is uh, it's like painting the floor, right? Like I paint the floor and, and then just like one last stroke and I'm out and I shut the door and you don't see any footprints. So, which is to say this, the process of composing this book was just, just a complex and yeah, there, there were a lot more words than, than there are in the final product. There were more avenues sort of explored than, than ended up being, where I went with it. But it must have been so, so yeah. this this is a very I don't know. There's it's a very it's a it's a all things that you want from a story to me. It's fun. It's mm. got some funny parts, you know, the dry dark humor stuff, but it's also like dark and mysterious and what's going to happen next kind of thing. So it's a page turner mm-hmm. in that way. So it's got like literary qualities, but it also has some commercial qualities and it's also done in what like 200 pages basically so it has the kind of efficiency narratively that i find really admirable this book just doesn't feel like it has any wasted motion in it and that's kind of that's the kind of thing i always look for and admire when i see it happening and i'm wondering if there was a sense of satisfaction with this book compared to your previous two that might have been different did you feel like you like did you have a sense of this book's um, like pr- crowd pleasing qualities. Like, did you feel like you'd nailed it? Yeah. I guess maybe you probably thought that about the other two as well, but I don't know. This book just feels like it really clicks into place beautifully. And I'm wondering if you noticed it. That is an excellent question that nobody's asked me. Uh, and the answer is no, not really. You know, I, I mean, it has its own sort of internal stuff that as a writer, I think some of it is, you know, you develop your own taste, you develop your own style. A lot of it, as you work 
because it's spread out over such a period of time, it's not necessarily sort of a conscious thing. And so, you know, in the end, it almost feels like, yeah, I'm, I used to be the person who wrote this book, right? And now I'm not, and I'm trying to figure out who that person was and how he did it. But also the things that I was going for in trying in getting to the, to a point where I felt like, okay, this is ready, you know, ready to show to my first reader, then, then my agent, then my editor, it, it, it had to do with, and you know, I sort of, a a way to say it would be that it works, you know, yeah, like it works. And so, but then there's the, you know, you can't really ever be the reader of your own work. So I, you know, I felt like it worked. I sent it to, I showed it to a few friends at different points and, you know, made some edits here and there. And then they said, yeah, this works, you know, but I didn't have a sense um, that the reaction would be like this, that it would be so many metaphors that people use, like to, they gulp it down or devour it or that kind of thing. Um, so wait, let me I just stop you. Let me stop no you. sense of that. Yeah. You weren't getting that vibe from early readers like the people that you know in your life. Like they were saying it works, but they weren't like, I gulped it down. It, like that stuff came after publication. Well, yeah, it came sort of during, yeah, in the publication process. You know, my agent got excited about it. My editor got excited about it. So that's that's when I sort of felt like, okay, there's there's some great stuff happening here. In terms of early readers, we're, you know, we're like, we're writers. We're, we're going to get up to our elbows in the craft aspects of how to make this thing better. You know, and so I got very positive feedback, yes, um, from my friends. Uh, but it's it's not the same. Well, you no, know, we're, we're, I was just yeah. going to say what I'm what I'm reminded of now is uh, how you know comedians will be like trading jokes with each other, and they don't laugh at each other; they just say that's funny. <laughs> yes, it's kind of like that's that. exactly <laughs> it's exactly what it's like. Yeah, yeah, and you know that that you know I, I have a friend who doesn't say it's good very often and he said it's good so you know that okay in that case i will send it on to my agent you know and 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 from my perspective it's like okay it works and i've done as much as i can to it for now to try to make the thing that i'm that i am currently wanting to make but yeah i was surprised by the the reactions and i really i find it really gratifying mainly i just like to hear how people read the book, you know, what they think about it. I'm always interested in hearing what readers think. And I feel like I've left enough open uh, in it for readers to meet it halfway and have their own takes on it, which, you know, some people would say, well, that's great for book clubs. But really for, <laughs> for me, it's just, I, I'm tr even trying to edge more and more toward more open, work which is ironic i guess that this thing you know grabs you by the throat and doesn't let go because i usually associate open work with stuff that you know you really just have to sit there and and bring a lot of your own energy to it i find i find that like, aspect you know, of it i find that aspect of it to be one of the most satisfying parts of it and it helps to distinguish it as a book that really stays with you because mm. there's, there's a lot left, like you say, open. There's a lot, there's a lot left to interpretation and it's fun, frankly, to wonder Good. at it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not like right. this, like, unsatisfying openness where you're, like, frustrated. It's more like it's, right. a, it's a sense of wonder and intrigue. I, I feel like what you don't want is speculation. You know, like, what the hell happened? You know, what you want is interpretation. You right. want The reader gets to the end and they're like, okay, I'm, I have a pretty clear sense of, like, what everything that happened in this book, but what the what does it mean? What were these characters thinking? You know, what 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 the hell happened? But not on a literal level. This is where I would ask you about process a little bit because, you know, writing is concentrated thinking. Right. I feel like you're a really yeah you're a really good thinker yeah. on the page in that like Delillo esque way. I I think most writers in literary fiction are that way. It's like trying to figure out what we think about things through the telling of these stories and through kind of slow yeah. meditative daily work. Um, right. But people are better and worse at that, you know, on the page. And you seem to me like we know each other a bit. You seem like a really kind of uh, cool headed person. Mm. Control is a word that comes to mind. Like you just feel like somebody in, who's in control of his shit. And I'm wondering, like, mm. on a day to day work basis, what it looks like for you, like how how you do it, like uh, the rich yeah. even down to the ritual just because the work really reflects that it reflects a clarity of thought really beautiful at the prose level like a lot of painstaking work yeah and i would say the control thing is an illusion um <laughs> <laughs> uh at least in terms of work like i i, I uh, this work requires a lot of intuition you know and i think i am probably like most you know uh, reasonably like college educated, uh, left brainy males, you know, like intuition is not where I start, right? Structure is where I want to start that kind of thing. Knowing things, you know, being able to grab something and answer the question completely. And yet you have to go into the murky place and be comfortable with it. And I think that sounds pretty abstract, but in in terms of what it really means uh, on a day-to-day level is being able to look at your own writing, the day's first draft pages, the rough stuff, and not hate yourself and not hate it is very difficult, I find, especially because you compare it to either the great writers that you're reading, because why read anybody else, or you compare it to the thing you just published that people have just been talking about in great positive ways. But my process tends to be to find I have to find a few goalposts or pitons or whatever you want to call them that that work together in a dynamic and then you know some kind of premise or some kind of character sort of feel my way toward it but the the writing of that first draft stuff uh, I usually cruise along until I hit a point where it doesn't work anymore and then I start over once I sort of have a project and, and, and I, and I will do that over and over until, you know, I'll do that for five pages. I'll do that for 20 pages. I'll do that for whatever until I get over that sort of hundred page hump. The downside to that is it's a painstaking process because also you have to believe when you're writing that draft, that this is the draft, right? You can't bullshit yourself. Right. So like from experience, you know, it's probably not the draft, but you have to believe, yes, this is the draft, which is why I, I feel like it gets harder and harder to do this thing. And it, and it's a totally inefficient process um, because you generate a lot of pages that never end up in the final work. However, something that happens during that process is 
for me, I end up uploading sort of into my consciousness a bunch of the stuff that I've put down in the earlier drafts. And I, and I'm not, and I don't cut and paste, you know, I just start over. Sometimes I'll have two documents next to each other if I'm pretty far along, you know, and I'm like, okay, I need to rewrite this chapter, but this is earlier. I don't cut and paste. And so the stuff that's in my head is the stuff that's stuck from the previous drafts. And when it comes back down onto the page, it comes down onto the page in a way that feels spontaneous and of the moment because it just came to mind. And it came, it was up there because I'd already discovered it in a previous draft, but it just came to mind, which is going to make it feel you're going to feel that energy on the page as a reader. So that's kind of been my process for at least for Panorama City and for this book. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, if I could make it more efficient and less, it feels like, you know, you just feel really stupid every day and, and that can wear on you. I think that's where that sort of marathon energy has to come in is you just have to be able to keep coming back to the, back to the thing you're working on. Well, and I think your description of how, you know, especially as you accrue experience as a writer, you start sort of learn yourself and you just learn this process in general and you realize that like yeah. the first couple or two, three, four <laughs> drafts are going to suck, but you yeah. have to believe. That's such an important point to make because it's like, you're, like, it's like the process becomes freighted with that knowledge and right. it's hard not right. to feel a, a sense of doom and yet you have yeah. to get up at, with a sense of confidence to engage with the work in a meaningful and constructive way. So it's like, yeah, like people who don't write, uh, who don't do this for a living or who don't yeah. do this as part of their life, like wouldn't understand <laughs> maybe unless somebody spelled it out for them. But like, that's the right. hell of being a writer. That is as good of a distillation it, of the psychological <laughs> hell of being a writer as I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I know, it, but it's real. And I, it would be great if the gods would only just every once in a while just give us a perfect shit like you know like you sit down you write a sometimes short story writers get this but like you sit down and you just write it and it's just about there right first out of the gate it would just that would buoy our spirits i think a little bit yeah but we don't get it i, I haven't gotten it not in a novel but but you know what else i was thinking right, is as i was listening to you talk and again i don't want to get too precious here but i, I was thinking of surfing and like mm -hmm. You know, it's like those first iterations are sort of like the shitty waves that either don't pan out or you don't catch them, but then eventually yeah. you catch the wave and you get that good, like long uh, right. ride. You know, that's what it, that's what I was visualizing as you were talking about it. Yeah. Well, there, there are a lot of hero to zero and back moments in surfing and in writing and to a certain extent, both require a you know, you can say a letting go of the ego, but really it's just being in negotiation with your ego because sometimes you don't need to be letting go of it, but sometimes you say, you know, you just celebrate it, but, um, you have to be willing to be close to it and far from it. And you have, to, yeah, you have to, there's a lot of humility involved. You have to be cool with getting yourself back down to that, that level of being humbled by the ocean or humbled by trying to make something in writing and and that's hard that can turn into depression i think especially if your mode is as mine has been at times like fear of not being humble you know like when things are really working credit goes to the gods uh you know and then when things don't work that's your fault right 
you know, and that's that's sort of that's what it feels like. So you just have to, I think you have to be careful that it doesn't drag you down. Well, and I think too, like another aspect of the hell that we are describing is mm, I love this. Yeah, right. Those those moments yeah. where uh, you feel like the gods are are you know, working with you and you're getting good stuff on the page. And then like yeah. you know, a day or two later, you'll pick it up and realize how wrong you were, like how oh, much yeah. trial and error there is, you know, to yeah. finally getting it to where it's really, truly working as well as you can make it work. And like that part of it is humbling to be wrong about in your own self-evaluation, yeah. you know? Well, and the other thing, the, the converse of that, which is what I, I tend to invoke is you can be having a terrible day and you sit down and just do your writing and you, you know, you're depressed or whatever's happening. And then, you know, a week later you go back and look at your pages and you can't figure out like where the terrible day pages were. Right. They're fine. Right. They're fine. Like the other, like the great day pages, they're all kind of like, it's, it's almost like you've got nothing to do with it or your feelings have got nothing to do with it. As long as you're in, in that mode. Do you have a, a, like a routine, like you do your writing at basically the same time or is it all over the place? Uh, yeah, ever since having a second child, it's become all over the place pretty much. So I've had to, you know, my ideal is wake up, you know, go to bed at one or two in the morning, wake up at 930 and start writing right at the window where things turn on for me, which is 430 in the afternoon. So that hasn't happened for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's a dreamy, yeah. that's a dreamy uh, senior. sounds good, page. right? Yeah. That's, it's also like a, a non-morning person. My wife is more of a morning person and she sort of shuts off at 4.30. So it's pretty funny. We'll sometimes have these moments where we cross over. In any case, yeah, no, it's been catch as catch can, you know, for, for, a, for a little while. When I'm cooking on a draft, I tend to then create, you know, a more regular window and I, I have to write it down like on an index card or something like this is the time when I move my body. This is the time when I make sure that I eat. This is the time when I have two hours to write or three hours to write if I'm, I'm lucky, you know, in a day. Okay. And like move my body, that means surfing? Uh, surfing. Yes. If I have the time, it means surfing. Sometimes it means taking a walk, you right, know, right. because I will, I, I'm not, other than surfing, I'm not like an athlete or something, and I don't have great habits. So it's just important to keep, you know, you want to live, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to keep living. Yeah. That's right. Uh, last question. You know, sure. uh, I forgot to ask this earlier. You have this film interest, possibly, mm. and mm -hmm. a, a limited series, you know, kind of thing. Would you participate creatively as a writer? um, in that, or is that, are you kind of thinking hands off and let somebody else do it? Well, I don't, I, I've never had that much sort of ambition to write film or TV. Like I wouldn't mind writing a play, but not film or TV. I don't know why. So if it were a feature film, no, you know, cause I, they just go write the thing. I, you know, Maybe I could give a note or two. I don't know. But if it were a television series where this sort of material is, is being mined for potential expansion or more of this world, yeah, sure. It would be fun to be involved. I wouldn't want to be the write the pilot or run the room or anything like that, but I think I would have something to contribute. And if I didn't, then I, I could join the ranks of a zillion other novelists who've been fired from their own shows 
Right, <laughs> right. That's a yeah. that's a very uh, yeah. that's a very august company you would have in that in that sense, right? That happens all the time. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I will keep my fingers crossed um, because Thanks. I would be. I mean, I would be interested to see this thing adapted as i said and i think it would play well so fingers crossed for you congrats again and thanks so much for taking the time to talk thank you brad it's been a total pleasure and i better hurry up and write something else so we can do this again all right there you go guys that is antoine wilson and his new novel is called mouth to mouth available now from avid reader an imprint of simon and schuster you can find Antoine Wilson on the internet at AntoineWilson.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Antoine Wilson. And his handle on Instagram is at the Antoine Wilson. Again, the novel is called Mouth to Mouth. It is superb. And it is really fun. And so smart. Just read it. You'll enjoy it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen to this show regularly, if you like it, if you get something from it, I hope you'll consider becoming an Other People Patreon person. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can move up the scale and get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, you name it. Uh, Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have anything you want to tell me, the email address for the show is letters at other PPL.com. Letters at other PPL.com. Let me know what you think. If you want to get the Other People app, it too is free. This show has its own app. Go search for it wherever you get your apps. Other PPL with Brad Listy. It's a good way to listen. It's very user-friendly. There is also another People YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that, and I hope you will, over at YouTube. That is also free. All right? And if you want to pre-order my novel, just go to bradlisty.com. Send me the... Uh, screenshot of your proof of purchase and I will send you a note in the mail and another people sticker all right okay I think that does it oh yeah if you want to review the show rate and review the show wherever you listen Apple podcasts what have you that helps so I hope you'll do that it takes two minutes and it can make a difference all right okay a lot of good shows coming up stay tuned thanks for listening I will talk to you next week.